All right, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 26, and before our communion time, we're just going to be looking at uh, the second half of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse 47, the scriptures read, While he was still speaking, Judas came out, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd and swords and clubs and the chief priests and the elders of all the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man sees him. And he came to Jesus at once, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Comrade, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father who will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against, as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, disciples left him and fled. Just a quick review from where we've been. Remember, it says there in verse 47, while he was still speaking. And that means that he was still speaking to the disciples, trying to get them up, trying to wake them up. And uh, he was trying to rouse them out of their sleep. They were supposed to be praying, and they weren't. And six days previous to this time, remember, six days previous to this time, Jesus arrived at Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he stayed there, and he recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And the next Sunday, uh, he rode, uh, or he crowds came out to him at their house, and he began to teach them and heal them. And then on Monday, he rode into Jerusalem, and the people along the way proclaimed him to be their Messiah. And on Tuesday, he cleansed the temple, threw out all the money changers, the buyers, the sellers, out of the temple uh, courtyard there, and... uh, On Wednesday, he taught all the multitudes in the temple. So he cleansed the temple before he actually went there to teach. And when he was confronted by the religious leaders, he condemned them for all their hypocrisy and false teaching and everything. And later, Wednesday afternoon, he left the temple with his disciples. He climbed to the Mount of Olives, and he taught them about his second coming. On Thursday, the Lord sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover feast that night. That evening after sunset, that Thursday evening, he celebrated the Passover with all the disciples in the upper room in the house of an unnamed follower, somebody who loaned the house to Jesus because Jerusalem was so crowded you'd never find a place there if you didn't have one already and uh, because it was the Passover season. And it was there in that place where he washed the disciples' feet. He taught them many things. We see all those things taught to us in John 13 through 16. And then he prayed for them in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he instituted what we're going to celebrate today, the Lord's table. He took 
the Passover and he converted it basically into communion, into the Lord's table. Near midnight that Thursday, he left the upper room and he left the city of Jerusalem with his disciples, except Judas Iscariot, who had already gone to do his work of the devil. And they ascended the Mount of Olives and they he warned them of the temptation of the trial that they would face as followers of him. And we saw how they ultimately uh, would defect. And even though they denied it, um, it came to pass. And so as we approach this text here, it's around midnight, a little past midnight probably on Thursday. And Jesus and his 11 disciples, uh, Judas being dismissed before the Passover meal, reached a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we find Jesus at here. And as he entered that gate with his entourage, he told eight of the disciples to stay here at the gate. And, and uh, Peter, James, and John moved with Jesus into the garden to find a more secluded place for him to pray. And then Jesus told those three guys, hey, you stay here and watch and pray. I'm going to go and, and pray myself. And he went probably a little bit beyond them. And unfortunately, they didn't pray. They slept. Now, being what I just told you, all that stuff they did in a short amount of time, I could understand why they slept. They were tired. They were probably exhausted. They had just eaten a big meal. They climbed up a mountain, Mount of Olives, to, to take care of this and uh, to meet with, with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they, they were just, just worn out. It had been a busy, busy week. And I don't know about you, but the one thing I've found is that Satan hits you when you're tired. When you're worn out, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you've extended yourself too far. That's when Satan hits you the most. And that's exactly what he did to Christ, and that's exactly what he did to uh, the disciples. Now, in the garden, Jesus is praying, and three times he went to his father in prayer, and he, he went back and tr- see if they were paying attention, because he was using that as an illustration for them, how to deal with temptation, how to deal with trials. And they weren't, they were sleeping and each time he tried to wake them up. And the third time it was too late. The crowd had already come. Judas was leading the crowd there. And sadly the disciples had slept during that time. So they were ill prepared for what was about to happen. And uh, he returned to the disciples. And he says in verse 45 and 46. Behold the hour is at hand. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. The holy righteous son of man is going to be dumped over to the hands of sinners. And he kind of rises them up, let's get going. Behold, he is at hand, the one who is going to betray me. And as he was speaking those words, the crowd was there. And so last week, we looked a little bit at the assault of the multitude, and we talked about of that multitude, Judas was the one who was leading it. He was the one who was going to point out Christ with his kiss, Uh, which is just the ultimate in betrayal. But it said he'd given him a sign. The one I will kiss is the man and seize him immediately because we don't want him to escape. And it's hard for us really to understand that Judas was so hard-hearted that he spent all this time with Christ that he still betrayed him in the end with a kiss. And we mentioned about how where it says there in verse 50, some translations say, and Jesus said to him, friend, that's not a proper translation. It should be comrade or fellow, 
Jesus did not consider Judas his friend at this point in time. He was filled with Satan. That would be hard to understand why Jesus would call someone who's possessed by Satan his friend. So that's really, uh, you can just write comrade or fellow over there. That's really what the original language uh, means. And we looked at the actors of this multitude, and we saw that they were made up of Jewish leaders, they were made up of Jewish or Roman soldiers and the temple police, and this mob was just basically out of hand. Probably close to a thousand people came with Christ, about 600 soldiers, and then the, the rest of the, the folks that were there, the leaders and the religious leaders, probably about a thousand people making their way into the garden to arrest Jesus Christ. And you can just imagine being there in the quietness of prayer and hearing the, the, the rustle of footsteps and you see the torches coming and Christ knew exactly what was going to happen at this point in time. Now it's important to understand that we kind of looked at this multitude and we looked at Judas and we said they're not too much different from the world, the wicked world in which we live. They're unjust, they're mindless, and they're cowardly. And they're also irreverent. They're profane. And we looked at all that last week. And then we saw the kiss of this traitor, Judas. And it was very interesting to see how uh, Jesus responded to him because he basically just said, look, do what you came to do. Don't play these games with me. Don't sit here and kiss me on the neck and call me rabbi and teacher when I know exactly what you're going to do. And we looked at Judas as a being characteristic of what we would call a false disciple of Christ, someone who is not a true disciple of Christ, and someone who is basically greedy, someone who is deceitful, someone who is just filled with hypocrisy. That was the life of Judas. And that brings us basically to where we're at today. And it says in verse 51... At the end of verse 50 there, it says, They came up and laid hands on him and seized him. After Judas identified Christ with this kissing event that went on, the authorities didn't waste any time. They grabbed him right away. They didn't want him to get away. Uh, John chapter 18 verse 12 tells us that the band and the captain of, and the officers of the Jews took Jesus, bound him as they would a prisoner. So all this happens very quickly. You can imagine that the disciples are still probably getting the sleep out of their eyes. You know, they're still rubbing their eyes, going, what in the world is going on here? But before they could tie him up, if you turn over to Luke chapter 22, verse 49, remember all these Gospels are writing from different perspectives. And so it's important to understand that we've got to kind of look at the different Gospels to get the whole story here of what's going on. Because each one of them maybe adds or leave something out, or whatever, and the other one pitches in and, and, and fills in the blank for us. It says in Luke twenty-two forty-nine, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, look at this, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Shall we strike with the sword? See, we're looking at the disciples' defeat. Here we see this, this action of the multitudes. They're coming up, they're seizing the holy Son of God. And then we see one of the ones who was with Christ as they, he were, they're asking this question, should we deal with this mob with the sword that we have, the two swords? And before Christ could even answer, 
one of them took out his sword, his Machaira, it's a short, little, stubby sword. By the way, I just want to fill in the blank. Last week, I, was, I, I used an illustration of my grandson going through a security thing with a, with a K-bar in his backpack. And, and I heard it from Ambika, and I heard it from Crystal, that I guess I just didn't fill in the story. Why was your grandson, why did this grandson have this knife in his backpack in the first place? Well, they used the backpack to go fishing. And so his dad had put in a, his knife, his dad's knife, this big K-bar knife, in the backpack. They went fishing. Well, they never took it out. Mason didn't even know it was in there. And Crystal didn't know it was in there. So when the security people found it and confiscated it, they were all kind of surprised. But he got the knife back, and every, everybody's fine. But some of you were saying, why would Mason have a, such a big knife carrying around a big knife? So they don't let him do that. So it was from a fishing trip. Anyway, you see here this arrogance of the one who cut off this uh, high priest's servant's ear. I mean, before they could even answer, Christ could even answer, he's got the, the knife out, the, the sword out, this little mini sword, and he's just swinging it around. And, and, and it's Peter is who it is. It's, it's interesting to know that out of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us who it is. They just say, and one of those with Jesus took out a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. It doesn't mention who it is. But when you get to the Gospel of John, it not only tells us who did it, Peter, and you can, you can find it over there in, uh, in John, but, but also, uh, John 18.10, but also it tells us who the high priest's servants was, Malchus. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention any names, but John does. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because John was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And probably as Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing these counts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, divinely they left out the person's name because it was still kind of a fresh event. So they didn't want any uh, replications coming down on Peter, so they just kind of let him be nameless. But by the time John wrote his gospel, everything kind of the dust had settled, it was over, so he could put the names in by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But here Peter takes out this sword, and he starts swinging it as if it was a, a, one of the, the big Roman swords. It's not, it's just a little knife that they carry. And he obviously was heading for Malchus's neck, and the guy ducked, and he just got his ear. I mean, Peter was probably just ready to tear at these people. And you say, well, here's a guy that was just sleeping. We know he's going to deny Christ. I mean, what makes him so bold here? What makes Peter so bold when this mob, I mean, there's a thousand people standing there, and he thinks because they have two little swords, little tiny swords, that they're going to be able to take them on? That doesn't make any sense. Well, look over at, at John, because John, once again, fills in the blank for us. Why was Peter being so bold here? In John's account, in John 18, says in verse 4 of 18, John, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them. So the crowd's coming. Jesus is there with his disciples, and he just walks right out to meet them boldly. And he says, Whom do you seek? And the verse 5 of John 18 says, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. He says, I am he, but really he said, I am. And look at what happens. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. When Jesus said this to them, so the kiss had already taken place. Judas had taken his place back with the crowd that he betrayed Christ to. And he's standing with the crowd. And it says, when Jesus said these things, it says they drew back and they fell to the ground. (laughs) Incredible. See, don't think Christ is some victim here that, that's being, you know, hauled off. No, he's not. God is this perfectly worked out. And so I think when the mob arrives and Judas points him out with these kisses that he was giving Christ, and Christ kind of probably maybe pushed him away and just said, look, do what you're going to do. And he went back with the crowd. Jesus says, who'd you come, who you seek? Who are you seeking? And Jesus looked at the crowd and said, I am. And it says they all drew back and fell down. I mean, think about it. They're on a hill. They're coming up the hill. Jesus is already on top of the hill. So they, they actually fell down. All of them. That's what the scripture says. Because of the, the power of his words. Now, that, I think, would give Jesus a little, or give Peter a little bit of uh, boldness when some, one of the disciples said, hey, should we get the swords out now? <laughs> you know, everybody's laying down. They're, they're on the bottom, sitting there, thinking, what in the world just happened? And so he asked them again, it says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They're probably getting themselves up at this point, dusting themselves off. Verse 8, and Jesus answered, I told you I am he. Then he says, so if you seek me, let these men go. So Peter got the idea somewhere here that Jesus still has pretty significant power to knock down a thousand people. I mean, and this was a legitimate (laughs) knockdown, not like these things you see on TV, these weird things that are happening with some of these guys. You know, they breathe on people and the whole crowd goes, whatever. That's, that's just, I think that's satanic is what that is. But this was literally the Son of God with his power saying, I am. I am God. And it just knocked them down. The force of his words. And so Peter's looking at this situation thinking, hey, so what if a thousand people come out? All Jesus got to do is knock them down again. Let's go. And he's got the sword out and he's ready to go. And he starts swinging and he misses the guy's head and gets his ear. Now, Peter is the one that's always just on the verge of doing something wrong all the time. Either saying something or doing something wrong. He, he's always acting in a way that that in a lot of, a lot of times it, it, it dishonors Christ just because of his nature. You might say, well, where did they get these swords? Where did these two swords come from? Well, Luke chapter 22, verse 38 tells us. It says the disciples said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. They found two swords somewhere. And he said to them, that is enough. Now, when you look at that text... All right, and they probably got that idea when Jesus was saying, "Hey, sell this and, and sell that." And, and uh, in, in verse thirty-six of Luke twenty-two, he says, "You have a purse, take it, a bag, 
and he who has no sword, let him, let him sell his garment and buy one. Well, Christ is using spiritual analogies there. He's not literally saying, hey, go buy us some swords. He's not saying that at all. And when he said to his disciples in verse 38 of Luke 22, when the disciples said, hey, we found two swords. We found these two little short swords. Do you want us to bring them? When he said, it is enough, he didn't mean, that's enough, that's all we need. He meant, it's enough. No more of this kind of talk. Put those things away. That's what he meant. Because Christ was really, the approach here of Christ was one of nonviolence. Because if you look back at, at Matthew 26, verse 52, he makes it very clear. Jesus said to Peter, after he cut his or- he, the, the servant's ear off, put your sword back into its place. In other words, we're not about violence here. Put that thing away. What do you think you're doing? This is enough of this kind of behavior. That's enough of that kind of talk. What, do you, what, do you, what are you doing here? And he was, once again, probably frustrated with his disciples. And you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you've got a thousand people. What's wrong with a couple of swords? There's a principle here. The principle basically is, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. It tells us there, Paul writes and he says, the weapons of our warfare are not what? Physical. They're not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So when the disciples said that they had two swords and the Lord said, oh, that's enough, he wasn't saying, yeah, that's good. He's saying, no, that's enough of that. We don't need this kind of stuff. We don't need, you know, we don't use conventional weapons. What are you thinking? There's no such thing in Christianity as a holy war, beloved. There just isn't. Any war in the name of Christ is utterly unholy and displeasing to God. Does that mean that all wars are unjust? No, I'm not saying that. But if you're doing it in the name of Christ, it is. The kingdom of God does not advance through physical, fleshly weapons, the Bible says. But we use spiritual weapons to tear down the domination of Satan. It reigns in the hearts and lives of young or of men and women. So Peter was totally out of place here. He was totally out of sync. He started swinging this little sword around, trying to stab everybody he could. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus said what when he's being interviewed by Pilate? He says, "If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would what fight." If my kingdom was of this world, then I would fight. What did he mean by that? He meant his kingdom is of another world. It's not of this world. Christianity gains nothing by military might. I mean, you see some of these other religions, and that's their goal. They're terrorists, and they desire to make everybody conform to their religious beliefs, and they do so by raining terror down on people. Holy war. Well, that's not honoring to God. And so John 18, 11, Jesus tells Peter, you know what, you put that sword away. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink of it? 
In other words, you don't understand the big plan here, Peter. I have, this has to happen. This has to take place. All these things. And so after Peter cut off Malchus's ear, Luke 22.51 tells us that Jesus touched his ear and healed him instantaneously. As far as we know, Malchus exhibited no faith in Christ at all. This is the only miracle found in Holy Scripture where Jesus heals a fresh wound. Somebody's hurt and he, he literally recreated this man's ear. I mean, he just didn't get band-aids and try to tape it back on. No, he just boom, touched it and it was, it was back to normal. See, Jesus' miracles throughout the Scriptures are sovereign miracles. He performed them for people who showed faith in Him, but He also performed them for people who showed no faith at all. So when you talk to the faith healer, and they say, oh, well, the reason you're not getting healed is because of your faith, we'll say, well, that's not right. God doesn't demand us to have faith in order to be healed. If we're healed, it's His sovereign work in our lives. And so at a time when this battle is kind of heating up, I mean, he, Peter pulls the sword out and lops the guy's ear off, and you know, you're staring at a 600 soldiers plus the rest of the crowd, 1,000 people. The Lord knew that, you know what, this can't get out of hand here because I've got to do my Father's will. I came here for a purpose. And a giant battle could have broken out between the mob and the disciples and Who knows what would have happened, but Christ intervened. The Lord knew his work would be for nothing had the 11 disciples been killed. He didn't want that. So Luke 22.51 says, basically, stop, no more of this. We're not going to do this by violent measures. It's then that Christ gave Malchus a brand new ear. I wonder if you could hear any better. I don't know. Maybe kind of. Well, the, the Lord gives us reasons here for this nonviolence. First of all, violence is fatal. Look at what he says in verse 52. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. All right? What he's saying simply is people who use the sword for personal acts of violence or revenge will be executed. Well, who are they going to be executed by? They're going to be executed by the government. You know what's weird? In a roundabout way, Jesus here is really, the Lord is advocating capital punishment. Back all the way in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, whoever sheds a man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, if you kill someone, you're going to die. Well, who's going to carry that out? That's part of God's law. Jesus says it again here in verse 52. When someone takes a life, basically the government has the right to take his life. Why did God establish that law? He did it to preserve society, to preserve the dignity, the sanctity of human life. That a human life means something. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul writes, The government bears not the sword in vain. What's he mean by that? 
God has given the government the right to take the life of murderers. And when the Apostle Paul was held captive by the Romans, he appealed to the law saying, hey, if I be an offender or if I've committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. He held up the law of God in Acts 25.11. See, it's unacceptable for anyone except the authorized executioner to take a life. This is a mixed up world we live in today because we got everything turned upside down. See, it doesn't matter if something is unjust, ungodly. No one has the right to personally take revenge because of that. And that's what Christ was trying to get across to Peter. If he were to kill one person in the mob, he's going to forfeit his own life. Under no circumstances does a Christian have the right to decide on his own to take a life. Even, I believe, if it's his intent to defend Christ's honor. Doesn't mean you don't have the right to defend yourself. Obviously you do. Doesn't mean you don't have the right to go join the military. They're a branch of the government. They tell you to go to war and you kill people. That's what you do. You obey the orders. We're talking personal revenge here. You don't have the right to carry out your own act of murder because someone did something to you or hurt you. That's why we have laws in place. That's why we're under the authority of the government. Whether you like it or not, that's the way it is. That's the way God has established it. So violence is a fatal blow. You're not going to get anywhere. You talk to anybody, you see somebody who's a violent person, they're always out trying to kill somebody, whatever. They, they end up dying that way, or they end up in prison the rest of their life. When verse 53, he not only says violence is fatal, but he says it's foolish. He says, don't you think that I can not pray immediately to my father, and he shall... Give me more than 12 legions of angels. I mean, Jesus is trying to show the disciples, what are you doing? Put these stupid little two little swords away. Don't you think if I wanted help, first of all, I could just talk again and knock everybody down, but I could also call on my Father in heaven, and he would give me more than 72,000 angels, just like that. Immediately. You'll say, well, how much damage can 72,000 angels do? Well, I don't know, but one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians all by himself in 2 Kings 19.35. That's quite a (laughs) ratio there. So I wouldn't want to mess with one angel, let alone 72,000. Peter didn't need to defend the kingdom of God because the Lord is not without his own resources. It's foolish to try to do this your own way, Peter. Put that sword away. Violence is foolishness. When he says there, don't you think now, immediately, he means. The idea in the original language means that as soon as Jesus, as soon as those words would have left Jesus' lips, hey, I need some help down here. Boom. Immediately, his father would have answered. Would have responded. But Christ wouldn't ask for help because he didn't need it. 
See, Christianity does not conquer by means of violence. They've tried that. It doesn't work in some countries. God will conquer by his, in his own time, in his own way, in his own power. So Jesus here, you see him humbly and voluntarily submit to this murderous plot that's playing out in front of him. Now, I want you to know the arrest itself was not outside the law since the Jewish leaders worked within some semblance of a legal framework. They weren't going to just hang him there from a tree limb in the garden. This wasn't a vigilante kind of group. No, they were going through the proper channels. It was totally unjust what they were doing. But the government brought Jesus to trial. Even though the entire affair was unfair and illegal the way they did it, they still used the government. It was an act of the government. So Peter had no right at all to take on this personal vengeance on his own. If God wanted to defend Christ, he would have. And you might want to ask, well, when, when governments do things that are unfair, fair, or when people do things in the name of government that are unfair, what do we do in those cases? If the Lord wants to deliver us, he will. I don't think we have rights to retaliate in those situations. We're called to submit to those in authority over us. But if we retaliate with violence, then what happens? We bring the death penalty on ourselves if we kill someone. Well, violence also violates the plan of God. Because look at what Peter, or look at what Jesus says. He says, I can do this, but in verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And according to the scriptures, Jesus had to be taken captive. He had to be led away as a sheep to slaughter. If you know anything about sheep, they don't battle the shepherd. They are led to slaughter quietly, peacefully. Christ had to be betrayed. 41.9 says, My own familiar friend whom I trusted, whom I ate bread with, has lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah 11 Verse 12, they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. You can read these verses over and over. All these things were laid out to happen a certain way by the preordained plan of God. And what Jesus is telling Peter is, you know what, put your sword away. You're not going to circumvent the plan of God here with violence. What are you thinking? And then we see where the, the disciples basically just abandoned him in verse 56. We're going to come back to verse 55. But verse 56 says, But all this was taking place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Left him and fled. That word all there in the original language is very emphatic. It means just that. In verse 56, all shall be offended because of me this night. And here you see the disciples fled out of fear. The Lord didn't fight back. He wouldn't allow Peter to fight back. 
So once the Lord was actually tied up after they saw these people fall down and Peter got the sword out and decided to take some revenge and all that was taken, the ear was back in place or whatever, they literally had Jesus tied up. The disciples were looking at this situation saying, okay, if they're going to tie him up, what are they going to do to us? I'm out of here. And they all took off. They fled. See, they didn't trust Jesus to deliver them. They were looking at him, even though they saw all his power and all his glory, everything, all these years they've been with him. And yet, when it came right down to it, when Jesus tried to tell them, look, you need to be praying, you need to be watching, you need to make yourself strong here spiritually, because something's coming down the pike, guys. I don't know if you're going to be able to handle it or not. Oh, no problem. We're not going to deny you. Man, we'll die for you. Not a big deal, remember? They all kind of rang in together boldly and proudly. We would never deny you, Jesus. And here they are running away with their tails between their legs as they tie up Jesus and haul him off. I don't know what would have happened, but I believe that Jesus had a plan to deliver his disciples. If they would have hung in there, if they would have stuck to it, I think that Christ somehow would have found a way. The only way I say that is over in Mark. There was one who followed Christ, not one of the twelve. But in chapter 14 of Mark, interesting little note here, Mark brings out Mark 14, verse 50. says here, and they all fled and left in verse 50. And then verse 51 says, and a young man followed him. We don't know who this young man is. Scriptures don't tell us. But a young man was following Christ as he was being tied up and hauled off. It says, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Some commentators say maybe it was somebody from the upper room that kind of tagged along. See what was going to happen next. Some said, oh, maybe it's John Mark. They don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Doesn't mean he was stark naked here. He's obviously wearing a loincloth over which he'd thrown this linen cloth. Probably went out in the cool of the night and threw this thing on quickly to try to follow the disciples to see what's going to happen. And now he's following Christ. It says nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And it says the crowd seized him. See, this is why I know they would have seized the disciples too. So the disciples weren't fearful without warrant. They were. They were fearful because they knew exactly what was going to happen next. But they all left. They all put their tail between their legs and ran away, even though they said they'd never do that. That's exactly what they did. But this young man who goes on to be nameless, it says they seized him. But look at what happened in verse 52. The Lord delivered him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. I mean, he's got 600 soldiers there. 
Think about it. That's a miraculous escape. A crowd of upwards of 1,000, 600 of them are soldiers, and they see this guy following Christ, and somebody probably says, hey, I think that's one of his disciples. Grab him. And they go to grab him, and this guy just miraculously escapes. It's the Lord's deliverance. It's sad that the disciples didn't experience any deliverance here because they didn't have the guts to stick around. They didn't believe that Christ could deliver them. They claimed that they would follow Jesus to death if need be. They claimed that they would never be offended by him or deny him. But when the time arrived, they ran, and they ran quickly. And you look at them and you say, how could they do this? But when you stop and you look at your own life, I look at my own life, I'm sure that there are occasions when we've been unfaithful, when we've refused to stand with Christ, when there's a price to be paid. These are defective disciples. Defective disciples. Well, why did they defect? Look at their characteristics. First of all, they were unprepared. What do you mean they were unprepared? What did Jesus tell them to do in the garden? He told both groups, you guys wait here at the gate, watch and pray, and we're going to take these other three up here, and you guys wait here. I'm going to go a little further, but you stay here, watch and pray. But what were they doing? They were sleeping instead of praying. They were unprepared. Because the why? Because they thought they were safe. They were with Christ. They had been with Christ for three years. They would seen him do incredible miracles. They thought, you know what? We're just going to lay down on the ground. and You know, Jesus would take care of anything if it happens. But we're just looking forward to the kingdom, you know. That's what was going through their minds. They thought they were safe. They confused their good intentions with strength and courage. And they became overconfident. And when Jesus told them, personally, you need to pray, you need to watch, you need to be alert. They didn't take it to heart. They thought, ah, whatever. I'm just going to go on with life the way we do. I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. Jesus had taught them incredible things in John. If you want to know what he taught them, go back to John 13 through 16. You can read all the things that Jesus just unloaded on them. And then he prayed for them, that the Father would keep them and uphold them. But you know what? They didn't listen to his words, and they didn't even listen to his prayer in John 13. And I think whenever you get away from the word of God, and you get away from prayer in your life, you're setting yourself up to be unprepared to deal with the spiritual issues in our lives today. If you ignore those two things, the word and prayer, you're going to be unprepared. You're going to defect when the the going gets rough. Well, secondly, they were not only unprepared, they were impulsive. I mean, the disciples acted on impulse, on emotion, rather than reason. Do you ever meet somebody like that? I mean, they just fly off the handle at any little thing. They don't even think through what they're talking about. They didn't think what was going to be the the right reaction here. So they just reacted in the moment of the situation. And out came Peter's sword and off went Malchus's ear. And before they knew it, it's like, wow, what's going on here? And the next thing, they're running away. 
It happened just that quick. They were completely impulsive with no sense of how to respond properly to the situation. I think there's a lot of Christians today that are unprepared, definitely, because of their lack of diligence in the word and prayer. But I also think there's a lot of Christians who are very impulsive. They don't have the biblical mindset to be consistent in their spiritual lives. I mean, we have to understand we have an open line of communication with the God who created us, beloved. We should be in tune with what God could do at any given moment. And when we're not communicating with God, what do we do? We end up reacting to situations impulsively and emotionally. Christians like that are constantly dependent on how they feel. I talk to Christians sometimes and, you know, I just feel discouraged. I just feel this. I feel lonely. I feel this. I feel that. I feel. Hey, God created your feelings. I'm not saying they're bad. But when your feelings have you by the nose and they're leading you around your life, you, you got a situation. You got a problem. Because your feelings can lie to you. Your feelings can communicate things to you that are simply just not true. And before you know it, you're worked up in this situation for no reason at all. None. We call that what? Anxiousness. We call that worry. If you're a victim of your own anxieties and your own worries, you're going to have problems. The only way to deal with that is to be controlled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God on a daily, second-by-second, moment-by-moment basis. Don't be impulsive. Don't react. I mean, sometimes, I mean, certain situations, I get in a certain mind, you know, thought, and and I'm just stuck. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is happening when, when it's really not. It's a dangerous place to be because all reason just goes out, out the door. You end up not being able to sleep at night. You can't sleep for days, and pretty soon you're worrying yourself sick. Why? Because you're responding. You're reacting rather than acting. You're allowing the enemy to kind of just come in a little bit and just kind of make something that's really nothing into something that's just bigger than life. We've all had this happen to us. It's a common thing. But that's why Philippians says, you know what, don't, don't be caught up in this lifestyle of anxiousness. But go to God in prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God. Well, they're also impatient. Defective disciples can't wait for God's deliverance. Just like these guys couldn't wait. They thought Jesus wasn't ever going to deliver them. And so they just took off and ran. The one young man must have thought something else because he hung around a little bit. They grabbed him and, and, and Christ delivered him. He let him get away. 
But most effective disciples are impatient. They're unwilling to wait for God's deliverance. I think if the, the disciples had waited on God, they might have seen a great miracle. Somehow, God would have delivered them out of this situation. Who knows? But you know what? There's a lot of us that are that same way. Rather than wait for God to deliver us, we take the easy route of escape. And we try to do it our own way. We end up bringing disgrace upon the Savior because we're not up to the task. And if we just endured each trial to its conclusion, then maybe we would see God deliver and, and then we'd be able to offer him praise and be an example of his faithfulness in our lives. But so many times we fall short because we're impatient. The last thing there, they're carnal. They reacted in their own fleshly powers with their own fleshly weapons, their little swords. They thought they were going to take on the whole mob. But you know what? When a, when a Christian is trusting in something like that, a fleshly resource of some, some, some kind, and they lose that, that resource, all of a sudden they don't know what to do. They don't know who to trust. You look at the lives of the disciples, they promised all kinds of things, but they just didn't ever deliver. <laughs> the end here of this section, we see the Savior's triumph. The Savior's triumph. And we jump back to verse 50, 55 of Matthew 26 for this. It says, At the hour, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out? As a ro- against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, here Matthew kind of preserves the dignity of Christ. I mean, think about it from a worldly perspective. Ah, we finally got this, this guy, tied him up, all his crew left him. You know, he's a failure. But no, Matthew has a way of turning these things around. I mean, look at what Christ endured. The world hated him. They wanted him dead. One of his disciples, who he spent three years with, basically traded him for, betrayed him for the price of a slave. The other disciples, when confronted with this situation, basically they felt their lives were threatened and they took off. They left. I mean, it doesn't say much about Christ as a leader. It doesn't say much about Christ as, quote, the Son of God. It robs Christ of his majesty on the surface. But when you look at the words of the Spirit of God, we see just the opposite is true. He establishes his power when he confronts the crowd. The first thing he does, he establishes his power. We saw that in John 18. When he said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all basically hit the, hit the ground. They're flat on their backs. He established his power. He's in control here. They're not. He had control over that mob. But the mob was so mindless, the mob was so crazy about this whole situation, it didn't matter to them. It's kind of like the mobs we see in Oakland, San Francisco, and L.A. and different. You know, they're just mindless. They just go out and do whatever they do. They don't think it through. Judas himself was possessed by Satan at this point. Jesus said the hour belonged to him, the power of darkness. For this hour, Satan was in control. 
Hell's plan was allowed to work out for a period of time. But Jesus was always in control. Even though he allowed Satan to have some breathing room there. He also exposed their evil. He points out to them, you know what? You come out against me as like a robber or a thief. You could have arrested me any time you wanted to. Why didn't you? Oh, i tell you why you didn't want to do it. Because of the, the, the crowd that was following me. So you come out here with clubs and swords and torches. He basically calls them to task and says, you know what, you wasted opportunities to arrest me on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Why didn't they seize him then? They feared the people. So he, he kind of unmasked their selfish motivation. He wasn't the robber. They were. They were being led by Satan. And God, by his sovereign design, gave hell its moment from early Friday morning until just after dawn on Sunday when Christ left the tomb. The leaders didn't take Christ early because it wasn't the time. God had this preordained out. We also see this in verse 50 when he confronts Judas. You see the majesty of Christ here. He's just calm. His commitment is right there. He put his life in God's hands. He didn't react like the criminal world. He offered no struggle, no anger, no wrath. I mean, he could have just burned Judas into a little crispy critter if he wanted to, but he didn't do that. And then even the way he interacted with Peter once he drew the sword out, totally calm, put the thing back in its place, what are you doing? Healed the guy's ear. I want to ask you this morning as we close, where are you in this scene? Do you identify with this rejecting mob? Jesus said in Matthew 12, he that is not with me is against me. So you can't be on both sides of the fence here. Do you belong with the unjust, the mindless, the cowardly, the profane group of people who denied Christ? Maybe you're a false disciple who pretends to love God and Christ. But the truth is, you're basically in it for what you can get. If you can't get it, you'd sell Jesus tomorrow for whatever came along better. Or maybe you identify with the disciples who were so weak that once this temptation came, they ran, they lost their battle. Or do you stand with the victorious, triumphant Savior, willing to endure to the end no matter what comes along? I don't know where you're at in this scene, but God does. And I trust that he will draw your heart close to his. Father, we thank you for our word, the word this morning. Lord, we pray for those who may just be unjust, mindless, part of the crowd. Father, we ask that they would come out from the crowd and come to Christ, seek to know him, desire to know him with all their heart, with all their soul. 
Father, there's only one way that our burden of sin can be lifted from us. And we all have that burden of sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. That includes all of us. The question is not the weight of that burden. Whether it weighs 100 pounds or 16 ounces doesn't make any difference. It's still sin. And it still negates our opportunity to have a relationship with you still takes away the opportunity we have to spend eternity in heaven with you until that burden of sin is dealt with. And the only way that that can be dealt with is through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to this earth not just to be born of a virgin and do some fancy miracles and impress a bunch of people, but he came, the sole purpose of his coming was to die. That perfect sacrifice on Calvary that day when he took upon himself all the sins of all the people who would ever trust in his name, even though he had never committed one sin, he took on the weight of all that sin. And he placed it on himself, the perfect sacrifice. See, even if we could die for ourselves, it wouldn't be a legitimate sacrifice because God requires holiness. We're not holy, we're sinners. Christ was holy. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And we pray this morning that each one here in this building would come into a knowledge of that forgiveness and grace that you offer. Lord, that you would touch their heart, that you would draw their heart close to you, that you would show them their need of a sinner. And they would realize that Christ is and always will be the Savior and the only Savior that can save them from their sin. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for our communion time together as we sing a couple songs and just focus our minds on you and the sacrifice that you made for us. This time is an open communion, but it is, uh, by open I mean you don't have to be a member of this church, but we, we pray that you would be a member of Christ's family to partake. It doesn't mean anything to you if you're not a Christian here this morning. And so we would ask, if you're not, that you would just pass the elements on to someone else. And It's never too late to cry out to God, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That opportunity is available to you even this morning. But we pray you'd lead us and guide us through this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.